You're listening to the Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I'm Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We're both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. All right, Wade. Uh, here's the next episode. I'll mm. kick it over to you to get us going. What you got for us today? What is today's on? Tonka Trucks? Tonka Trucks. That's right. And the glory of God. No, today's is on the household. And so our opening question is, Michael, Pastor Michael, what has been the most challenging part of household management for you in the last month? The most challenging aspect of managing a household in the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we are just coming off of Christmas slash New Year's season. So all the kids are home. We had family in from out of town. Um, and um, well, frankly, uh, that that's a good recipe for just carnal feelings mm-hmm. and behaviors. They don't listen to this podcast. It's okay. Yeah. Um, kids, if you're listening, um, turn it off right now. <laughs> no, it's a... Uh, I, I I struggle with just feeling irritable, um, and I I want to be a good presence. I want to be loving, gentle, you know, all the things mm-hmm. that you want a godly, strong father to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever your routine is disrupted, you have extra people in the house, things are just out of sync. In some sense, it's I mean that that is a lot of fun because you have Christmas memories and. Um, spend time with family. I mean, that's all fun, but it does, it does, uh, give opportunity for the flesh to manifest itself. That's me. Well, you are loving and gentle. I can say that being in your house as much as I am. So encouragement there. I'm sure we grade ourselves, uh, probably like most, like most men who are trying to do the right thing. We grade ourselves on a pretty harsh curve. So you and I do, you and I are both pretty self-critical. Um, you don't think that's, you think that's more of a personality bent and not, I was, I was sort of assuming it's, if you're trying pretty hard to succeed at this thing. I think it's a function of conscientiousness. We are conscientious men and other men aren't. That could be excellent fathers. That's just not their particular bent. And a lot of those guys are like, I'm nailing it. (laughs) I'm doing amazing. And maybe they are, maybe they're not, but they, they don't fret. I had a guy in my small group once, he gave me sage advice and it, it, I say sage advice and it was so simple. It's, it's, uh, it's absurd, but he said, you got to quit being so hard on yourself. And he said that right. He, he spoke it right where I needed it mm. because he saw, and the things I was sharing that I tend to be, there's, there is a, um, there's a, a healthy self-examination right. where you see sin, you were convicted, you repent. And then there is a morose version of it, which is what I tend to, mm-hmm. um, self-loathing is uh, I don't think that that is a, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I want to say it's not healthy or good. Yeah. <laughs> I could be wrong about that, but. No, that, uh, that, that computes. I was just talking to somebody about John Piper's uh, William Cowper biography. And if I remember right, Cowper was just oh, yeah. constantly in the depths of despair. And I think for good chunks of his life, maybe even at the end, thought he wasn't a Christian, even though yeah. he had no real reason, no, no objective reason to think that. It was like just writing hymns thinking I'm, I'm probably unregenerate, but yeah, I want God to be glorified. So I'll write this hymn. Um, yeah. And he wrote that there is a fountain filled with blood. Yeah. Uh, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That, that is one of the most violent graphic mm-hmm. songs, but it's vivid. And I, 
And growing up singing that song in church, it didn't strike me about how violent it was until somebody pointed it out because I just become familiar with it. Yeah. But that just shows the intensity of the of Cowper's own self perception and of yeah what he saw as Christ's sacrifice to redeem a sinner such as him. And while there is a healthy uh, hatred of one's flesh, hatred of one's sin. Psalm 51, Paul saying he beats his body into submission, that sort of thing. Adopting Satan's posture towards yourself. You and I were just talking about this off air. Adopting Satan's posture towards yourself where you, Wade, and you're talking to yourself, are a, a vile, mutated subhuman mm-hmm. who doesn't even deserve to have a life. Uh, and God made a mistake when he created you. Yeah. That, that sort of, I mean, that's what Satan does in, Zech- in Zechariah 3. Uh, he's the accuser of the brethren in Revelation. That's yeah. a, we can do his dirty work for him, right? And that that's not godly. Hatred of sin is godly. Right. Self examination is godly. <clears throat> that's but right. This sort of uh, demonic posture towards oneself is not. All right, that's good. Uh, for me, the last month, I would say self control in terms of my uh, anger, irritability, frustration. Not like punching walls or screaming or anything like that, but just just letting frustrations. Uh, come out of my mouth mm-hmm. when uh, they should be repented of in advance and just put to death and moved on. Yeah, well, that uh, that reminds me of, I mean, you, you look in the scripture about what does it typically say about the sins of men and anger, quarreling, mm-hmm. those things tend to come out frequently. Um, there is... Uh, Throw pillows uh, is the sin for women. In <laughs> throw, too. throw pillows. Yeah. Like, be, because they just have no practice. They have absolutely no purpose, and yet women adorn everything <laughs> with them. And it's, it's wicked. It is of the devil. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of the, the text where uh, it's saying, do not be harsh with yeah. your wives. At First Peter 3, yeah. as I recall. And also, wrestle. yeah. And then um, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your mm-hmm. children to anger. Um, I think the, the NIV says exasperate mm-hmm. your children. And I think f- men who just were, were not as pleasant typically right. as, as a typical woman could be, and we can exasperate people. And so it is a, as you say, and as I've identified too, it's like, it is a, it is a self-control, yeah. which is fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Those are the sorts of things that, uh, I, I want to live and embody as a man, but there's going to be that, um, that need to restrain just the rough edges and yeah. anger. And we need to kill the Bill Parcells inside of us that is just gruff and mean. And I feel like I should know who that is. It's, <laughs> is it a sports I actually guy? Know, Bill Parcells might be a great guy in real life, but I'm using him as the avatar for, uh, uh, was he a coach? Is that, yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So he, yeah, he coached the, uh, Dallas Cowboys, right? Okay, uh, yeah. New England Patriots. Well, Giants. there you go. I'm I'm outed as a as a ignorant. Sports well, I fan. mean, you're from West Virginia. You probably didn't get into the NFL until you moved here. I'm. That's guessing. right. I, yeah. I didn't have any NFL you didn't have teams. A team in West I didn't have a team. I had the Cincinnati Reds. I was into baseball. Yeah, but I was never got into to football until I moved to Cincinnati and started following the Bengals here, which has been a good. Yeah, it's been a good good couple of years. Well, yeah, since you've been here, things have been dandy. All right, so there we go. There's our. Uh, there's our opening question. All right, let's take a look at uh, some of the credible sources in the world that are saying things that we want you to know about that are uh, crazy, demented, um, problematic. 
Now, I don't know what you're going to share with me, but you've prepped me that you, you're expecting some very strong reaction. From yeah. You. I hope I don't let you down. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> I would be happy with anything from a stroke to a scream. <laughs> um, but yeah, if, if you just yawn, then I, I didn't do my job. So the first one here is from a Rutgers law professor. Uh, she was a clerk to a federal judge and then an assistant U.S. attorney in the state of New York. So this is a, a pretty high roller in American society. She wrote uh, a paper for Santa Clara University, the oldest uh, academic uh, institution of higher learning in California. This is a pretty well-known college. Mm -hmm. And then now works for Rutgers, the second oldest college, I think, in New Jersey in a very well-known school. So this is, this is not, you know, some crank from you know, some obscure community college. Yeah. This is, this is a uh, <clears throat> pretty heavy hitter here. So she wrote a, um, a piece called Family Values for the Marcola Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Her name is Twyla Perry. And I just have a, a few quotes here. Uh, the first one is rather long, so bear with me, but there's a lot to, I think, comment on there. She writes, there are other aspects of the family values rhetoric that implicate both gender and race. The formation of single mother families challenges the notion of the centrality of men to the family. The male has historically been considered the head of the family, a status which has until recently been affirmed in the law through a whole host of legal rules. Moreover, the idea of the male as the head of the family is not simply a function of the law. It is also deeply ingrained in our culture. It is a part of the pervasive nature of patriarchy that both men and women have been socialized to think of men as indispensable to the definition of the family. In challenging the centrality of men to the family, single motherhood challenges a fundamental and long-standing social pattern the control of men over women. This challenge is presented across the class spectrum. A single mother on welfare may not have a great deal of power over her life, but in a sense, she has more power than a woman who has no access to any money other than through a husband. Hmm. Thus, one consequence of the availability of public assistance is that poor women can obtain at least a small measure of economic independence from men. This can enable them to decide to have children without husbands or to leave husbands who are physically or emotionally abusive. The quote goes on, but I'm going to hit pause for a moment. Any thoughts? <laughs> um, I'm just bored and falling asleep over here. What did, did, were you speaking? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I okay. There were, there were a couple things that came to mind as you were reading. Um, there is... It, She's presuming that m women can get pregnant without mm -hmm. the assistance of men. So where do single mothers come from? So there's, um, I suppose, with artificial technology, but still, sperm does not come from any other place than a man. So one, yeah, somewhere we're working on it. Somewhere along the line, a man is going to need to be involved. But then um, she wants to, or she's speaking of the value of liberating women mothers from being married or dependent upon a man to provide, um, which sounds great until she talks about who would provide, which would be society. And what does, where do, 
who are the like it's i mean obviously there are women and men both in the workforce that are it's going to be real hard to get men completely out of this equation here yeah so it's so it's like okay it's okay to depend on men for your provision it just can't be one that's committed to providing for you specifically you have to sort of uh, glean. that would be a great platform slogan right there. Democratic platform slogan, <laughs> which, which is what, yeah, it, it's, it's okay to depend on men as long as it's not one who's committed to you specifically. <laughs> That's right. Like, that. Yeah. You can, you can be dependent on men as long as we are, are there. It's a category of men mm-hmm. uh, that it's, uh, strangers, and strangers, nameless, faceless, but it's, it, it is the relocation of responsibility from the family to the state, because that's the only way to accomplish what she's talking about. It is to it is to put the state, some governmental agency where you've got bureaucrats and offices and suits and ties and um, whatever that are that are determining what you need and, and allocating money to you and taking it from others. And it's like it is it it, it is a it is a, a really fantastical. And I mean that in the literal sense, it is a fantasy. So it is fantastical that that is good or even a, a, a remotely reasonably workable solution for yeah. anything. Um, it, yeah, yeah, I mean the the one sentence that really struck me that I I just think is terrible, is awful. It's an awful contention is a single mother on welfare may not have a great deal of power over her life, but in a sense she has more power than a woman who has no access to any money other than through a husband. Hmm. So it is uh it's more it, it's it's more positive, it's better, it's good mm-hmm. for a woman to depend on welfare rather than yeah. a husband. Yeah. Um, you, you have to wonder when you read things like that, like, do, do the people that write these things know any healthy marriages, any healthy households where you have a husband that is lovingly supporting his wife and children and she is delightfully right. raising her family? And would anybody want, would it, as you're raising your daughters, is that what you want? When you're raising your daughter and she's six, seven, eight years old, are you thinking, man, I really hope she gets some welfare? <laughs> yeah, of course not. Yeah, I, will lo- I will love the, the day that I walk her down the aisle to that welfare check. <laughs> It'd be so beautiful. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, no, nobody wants that for their children. Nobody says, sweetheart, whenever you grow up someday, um, I, really, I really hope that you grow up to be a single mother and you're dependent on the state to, to provide for you. Nobody wants that. Uh, well, I can't say nobody yeah. because Apparently, Twyla, Twyla yeah. Perry wants it. Right. Uh, and I want to make a distinction here before I read the rest of her quote. Um, that that does not mean that we don't have mercy or compassion to people who are single mothers and need or or feel that they need some measure of financial assistance. What we're arguing against is normalizing it, saying that it is good and proper, saying that it's something that should be advocated for. Yeah. You can have compassion on somebody who is in a hole without saying it's good to fall into holes. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, biblically, the category is widows and orphans. So a, let's say a 16 year old uh, single woman that didn't have a father to take care of her, she would have been considered an orphan mm-hmm. in the ancient world. And then if, a, if you had a married woman whose husband died, she was a widow. And the scriptures say, hey, these are emergencies because yeah. you have people that are vulnerable and they need to be. Uh, they need protection and provision because they are unattached to a household that can provide those protections for them. Um, what this woman is advocating for is the goodness of right. widowness and the goodness of orphanness or right. orphanhood, or whatever the yeah, word is. Which is, uh, yeah, it's it's insanity. 
Yeah, it is. But just let me uh, here. I'll, I'll finish this little section of her paper. The Murphy Brown controversy for those who are millennials and don't know who Murphy Brown. I remember yeah. Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle. So that's yeah. She's going to reference this. The uh, vice president of the United States, Dan Quayle, uh, if I remember right, said something along the lines of it's, we we've got Murphy Brown now as our as our uh, role model for women. And Murphy Brown had gotten pregnant without a, without a husband on the TV show that yeah I think at the time was the most watched TV show in America. So here she references that the Murphy Brown controversy provides an illustration of the issues of centrality and control at the middle and upper middle class level. Murphy, a fictional television sitcom character who was obviously well-educated, professional and economically self-sufficient, decided to bear a child outside of marriage. Obviously, she was unlikely to become an AFDC, that means welfare, recipient. Why did her decision become the subject of national attention and the focus of remarks by the vice president of the United States? The answer seems clear. Murphy Brown's decision to have a child outside of marriage represented a threat to remove middle-class men from centrality and control in the family. Murphy Brown was essentially saying, I can support a child financially, and I can nurture a child independent of a man. She became a dangerous symbol because she posed the possibility that an attractive, affluent woman could choose to reject a powerful societal system, decide to have a child without a man, and suffer no apparent adverse consequences. Hmm. Which Twyla Perry would say there can there are plenty of instances where there aren't any adverse consequences. That sounds like she's saying it's a it's a good thing. Yes, Murphy Brown is a desirable development. We should have more Murphy Browns in the real world. Yeah. A little later, she says, even assuming that there are some values that most people in the society agree are desirable, there is no clear evidence that these values cannot be effectively transmitted in a family that is headed by a woman. Let me say that again. There is no clear evidence that these values, desirable moral values, cannot be effectively transmitted in a family that is headed by a woman. Although research purports to show that it's children raised without fathers who are disproportionately represented in statistics concerning failure in school, involvement with the criminal justice system, and other problems, there's been no proof that it is the presence of fathers that makes the difference between a child's success or failure. That is demonstrably false. So she gives that, I want, I want you to flesh that out, but let me just summarize her. She gives the head nod to... Yes, we've all seen the data. Sure, families without dads, the kids do worse. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But, Michael and Wade, it is not, we don't have proof that the dad is what... Yeah, it's the correlation causation yeah. thing. So, it's like there may be some correlation to fathers producing um, a father in a home leading right. to positive outcomes for children, but that correlation does not mean the father's the cause. Right. And so what say you, Pastor Clary? Well, the... That the the data, uh, you know, just if you look at studies uh, of households with fathers and households without fathers, and you if this cuts across different class, this cuts across different culture, this cuts across different um, uh, racial ethnic groups. Um, the single greatest privilege that any child can enjoy is a father in the home. And it, it is not even close. Mm. Um, so people might say, well, if you grow up in a middle class family, you're more likely to have X or Y outcomes. If you grow up in a poor family, you might have X or Y outcomes. And there's going to be some variety of outcome in all of those scenarios. But if you look at the data of a father being present in the home 
for a child, the most consistent and positive correlative outcomes to that is always with a father in the home rather than not having a father in the home. And so um, this was uh, written about, I don't, um, I'm just thinking of it at the moment, so I don't, I don't have the resource right in front of me as, as who wrote this, but there was a- Was it from Sesame Street? Most of uh, my stuff is from Sesame Street. I don't think it was okay. from Sesame Street. Okay. But after you say it, I'll be able to know for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I can look it up and put it in the show notes if okay. I don't forget. Okay. But the, the, um, uh, you derailed me again. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. What data, data about different, the father, um, you see the father being the cause in a number of different cross sections of data and population, uh, middle class, lower mm-hmm. middle class, which by the way, this is also evidenced in common sense. Like, and I, and I know we all kind of roll our, those, those of us who read books and, you know, read articles, we kind of roll our eyes when somebody says common sense because we think, but there is, there is validity to, yeah. I have lived in the world for a number of years and I have observed that mm-hmm. the young ladies who grow up without dad in the home have a particular set of problems when it comes to sexuality, substance abuse, mm-hmm. uh, attitude, school. The, yeah, the ones with dad don't. Exactly. Well, we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast that God made the world a certain way. There is a design, there is a natural order to the way God's designed things. And one of the most fundamental things that everybody needs to grapple with in life is how do I relate to the opposite sex? And in a healthy household, you see a man and a woman and you see how they interact and relate to one another. And from that, you can detect what is good and what is not good about the way they related to one mm-hmm. another. And then you can internalize lessons about that. So if you're a young man, you can see how do I, how do I speak to her? How does she respond to the way, uh, uh, the way that I speak to her? You, you learn these very important, we call them soft skills. They're, they're, they're social skills about how to relate to one another. You see what, what is needed from my dad, what is needed from my mom. And when you have both, and of course, there's endless variety in the way this plays out, but you do have a pattern or a template to follow. Whenever you have a single mother, the, a single father household is extraordinarily rare. So what you end up with with single mothers is you have an, a preponderance of feminine instincts and feminine sensibilities shaping the world of that child. And you have a dearth of masculine sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And so the, the masculine is foreign. It is strange. It is, it is what is it? And it becomes caricatured and twisted because it's not something that was present in a healthy, mm-hmm. consistent way over a lifetime. It is something that is remote and weird. Um, and so it could, in some cases, it could be this exotic thing that is an object of desire. So a lot of young girls growing up in a single parent home, they, they either have this erotic desire for a male, male affection because they needed it and never received it. Or you could have the opposite where it's a complete rejection of it. And it is a turning towards erotic desire for other females because that is something that is familiar. Either way, you can't just eliminate masculine presence in a home and not expect there to be some dire consequences. Yeah, which has implications for, uh, I mean, later on in the, when we unmask some sophistry, I'm going to bring up something that I saw on a, uh, a German public television documentary. Um, but what you just said has implications for same-sex households. When you suppose it happens. Exactly. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not even prepared to go. Two moms, two dads, raising a children, right. raising a child. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm losing femininity or masculinity uh, in, in one of these households. It's, it's just, just two parental units. Right. That, that's what you have. Right. It's, and why is two so magical? Right. Yeah. Maybe three. Three right. is better. Right. In fact, you know, 
Why not half a dozen? Right. You have all these caretakers. Once you remove the transcendent ground for what marriage is at all, then why does it have to be? Why does it have to be humans? Why does it have to be two humans? Of course. All right. So one one more quote from Miss <laughs> Perry here. Um, actually, I don't know if she's Miss or Mrs. I'm going to say Miss on a hunch. <laughs> why? If she sounds so attractive, I'm sure she would have uh, she would have reeled in some wonderful man by now to marry her. Um, Yes, I, from what I can tell of reading her paper, being married to her would be a challenge. <laughs> the reasons women might choose to have children outside of marriage vary. It may be in part, as Martha Feynman suggests, a resistance to patriarchal ideology. For women who see themselves as facing limited prospects in terms of education and employment, motherhood may be viewed as the sole way to gain status. Single motherhood may be chosen where there are few potential marriage partners. It's been noted that some women remain unmarried not because of a shortage of available or willing men, but rather as a response to the sexism of marriage. Mm. It's that last sentence there that particularly tells me we would have had a delightful honeymoon. <laughs> so, so marriage itself. Is marriage sexist. itself. Yeah. Marriage itself is a sexist or patriarchal uh, institution or system. And she is a critical race, uh, crit critical theory and critical race theory mm -hmm. proponent. So. She, I'm sure that would play into, this is one of the many systems, marriage is one of the many systems that I, as a critical theorist, say should be deconstructed. Yeah. Uh, because it is inherently oppressive. Yeah. Um, so, uh, hegemonic, whatever the phrases are. I'm sure Neil Shenvey could teach me a little bit more on the vocabulary. <laughs> but yes, marriage itself is a problem. Marriage itself is the disease or a symptom of the disease. And mm -hmm. so it is good for us to normalize single parents, uh, single moms in particular. So this is, again, not an obscure woman. She was uh, an assistant federal attorney. She is a professor at Rutgers University. This particular article was written for the oldest university in California. Um, yeah, so we're, she's, a, she's high up on the food chain in yeah. our academic atmosphere. Yeah, um, it's not some fringe phenomena that has no no clout in Correct. society. Correct. This was not a thread on Reddit. Uh, and our next one here is from every single publication I found that had academic rankings had Duke in the top 10. So Duke is, is you know, it's not Ivy League, but it's right outside that. Okay. That's so you're reading. This is a professor at Duke named Kathy Weeks, uh, and it's an academic paper she wrote called Abolition of the Family, the Most Infamous, Infamous Feminist Proposal. Now you... I found out were familiar with the abolition of the family as like a feminist thing. I right. was not. I mean, I'm I'm sure on some level I knew that there were feminists in the 70s who said we should not have family anymore. But I didn't yeah. know that family abolition was like a thing. Early feminist thinkers, um, Simone de Beauvoir, Sheila Smith Firestone. Can you say de Beauvoir again? Just de Beauvoir. Like, that's uh, French. That's beautiful. Uh, I can do I can do accents. It, you can do accents too. Yeah, yeah, but. Um, but uh, then um, there's Betty Friedan who called it, um, I think I referenced this in another episode, but she called the home a domestic concentration camp. Uh -huh. uh, I looked it up after that episode. Um, and this is, this is going back. Had she been to an actual concentration camp? Uh, maybe. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I haven't read her biography. Okay. But, but that's what she, that, that is what they think about the family. They think it is this prison sentence. It is... Um, slavery drudgery mm -hmm. and the the impulse is to free women from this this um the sentence of yeah. imprisonment every generation has god authored things that it rebels against mm -hmm. so in our day the family appears to be the most uh 
prevalent one. Here's a quote from Mrs. Uh, actually, I don't know if she's Miss or Mrs. Weeks. I'll say Dr. Weeks. Here's a, a one quote from this paper. The family with its historical roots in the heteropatriarchal version, heteropatriarchal, that is a long word. It is. Continues to draft men and women into different forms and hours of labor, serving, as we noted earlier, in the managerial regime of the gender division of domestic labor. And I, I wrote myself a little note here. She laments reality. So <laughs> she, she, is, she is grieved that God has made the world in such a way that men are typically going to do and want to do one kind of work, and women are, are typically going to do and want to do another kind of work, which I've heard feminists do um, when it comes to like the STEM fields. Yeah. Um, and yet here in Scandinavia, which is an incredibly feminist and egalitarian region of the world, Lo and behold, there's still lots more men in the STEM fields. Uh, it's well, the patriarchy almost, must be really deeply embedded there. It is. There. It is. It's super strong in Sweden and Finland and Norway. I mean, the, the patriarchy um, can that can be just the omni villain. Mm -hmm. It's it it can be a shadow uh, influence in everything that you want to complain about. It is just it's it's everywhere. So anything that you don't like, you can find some. You can trace back something that you can just blame on the patriarchy. Yeah, they forgot pickles on my double cheeseburger at McDonald's because of the patriarchy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, another quote from Dr. Weeks here. Uh, a third challenge seems more promisingly disruptive of the traditional couple form. So she has written about two other challenges. She wants to challenge the couple form. So she says part of the reason why we have this obnoxious thing. She wouldn't say obnoxious, but I don't think I'm being too... I don't think I'm stretching it too far. This obnoxious thing called the family is because we are so used to coupling off. So we got to disrupt that. We so gotta, the number two. The number two. And the fact that we want to have lifelong sexual relationships. This is part of the abnormal feature of our species right now that has allowed the family to kind of fester and become this thing we can't shake off. So a third challenge seems more promisingly disruptive of that traditional couple form. This is the potential of some practices of polyamory to challenge what Mimi Shippers calls, quote, the institutionalized and compulsory monogamy and mononormativity of the dyadic couple. It's obnoxious. <laughs> what in the world? Yeah. That's such a word salad. It is. The institutionalized and compulsory monogamy. So you're institutionalized to be monogamous. Okay, so it's an institution. Right. It's compulsory. So you're forced. Our TV shows, our laws, our, every, it's a system. our songs, everything kind of forces you to be monogamous. And the mononormativity of the dyadic couple, non-monogamous, non-dyadic, dyadic, I guess meaning two, non-monogamous, non-dyadic polysex relations can allow more improvisation into the scripted protocols of sexual relationships and contest the binary gender identities and hierarchies that are more easily and often incorporated into the couple form. So you all in the West, we have all maybe even unconsciously created this thing called the couple, mm. this, this lifelong monogamous sexual relationship. And polyamory can kind of unplug us from that matrix mm. and get us, get us up to the the free, easier breathing air of, I don't know, sexual orgies. pleasure. Yeah, orgy, orgies, yes. Orgies. Yeah. There is one, one guy from the French Revolution I read that some of these people like who did literally advocate for constant orgies. And you got to stop to eat, I guess, but. 
Good night. That, yeah. Um, here's, here's, she quotes uh, two, I'm assuming scholars. She quotes them and it's an academic paper and she cites them and the year of their publication. So I'm assuming these are, you know, PhDs, Stevie Jackson and Sue Scott. And she says, summarizing them, why do we not demand that our friends give up other friendships? Why do we not assume that a parent of two children will love one less? That the couple is supposed to require the exclusivity that we don't expect of other close relationships reveals the power and persistence of the specific sexual morality that continues to animate the form. So it's just this this Western Mm. Christian sexual morality that kind of just arbitrarily cropped up in the human timeline. And you guys have tried to continue banging that drum, and now you've forced all of us to stop doing what other primates do and just sex is sex, man. Yeah. Non-monogamy, she says, may be a viable alternative for some, but it can offer even to non-practitioners. Practitioner. So (laughs) even if you don't practice non-monogamy, it can offer to you an important estrangement effect that might chisel away at the reified common sense about romantic coupledom and perhaps open up new kinds of possibilities. So maybe even if I don't participate in non-monogamy, just the normalization of non-monogamy, polyamory, it may free me up to try a sex doll or uh, some other, even if I stay monogamous. Mm. And, she, and she is advocating for this, saying, saying that this would be a good thing. Um, just a couple of more and, and then we'll be done with Dr. Weeks here. So you knew about Shulamith Firestone. I did not. Uh, pretty apparently well, well-known well feminist mm-hmm. uh, writer and thinker. Firestone's own pro- uh, proposal involves, among other features, deconstructing the consolidations that produced the nuclear family model with the couple form at its center. So Firestone and Dr. Weeks here would be happy to deconstruct the nuclear family. To recall our earlier description, this model imagines that a single partner, it the, the old nuclear family model imagines that a single partner can serve for a lifetime as a sexual partner, romantic lover, friendly companion, income pooler, co-parent, domestic co-worker, and partner in aging. She's saying the nuclear family, Firestone pointed out correctly, the nuclear family assumes that one man or one woman can do all of that for a lifetime. And obviously the implication is, nudge, nudge, we know they can't. Yeah. Uh, disaggregating these roles and assigning some or all to different people. Maybe I grow old with mm. Jennifer, but I have sexual relations with Tiffany, and mm. I and I raise my kids with Jonah. Mm. You know, and I and I kind of just farm out these different roles, and and it's it's a village. It sounds sexual. like cafe is like a sexual cafeteria. Yeah, it's like you've got your tray, your plate, and you just scoop onto your plate uh, whatever kind of. So, but, but notice how self-centered that is. Yeah. It's like, I want to use you to raise children. I want to use you for sexual pleasure. I want to use you to provide for me whenever I'm old and aging. That it is, there is no love commitment covenant. Um, there is no, I mean, like it is, it is, I am God. Right. And everybody else, but it's not the Christian God. It is the, the caricature ancient pagan gods where it is, I am I am uh, the center of your world, and you live to serve me, worship me, feed me grapes while I lay on a couch. I mm-hmm. mean, it is it is a, an absurd, just an absurd picture that somebody would actually advocate for it and take it seriously. Yeah, and and she cites 
quite a few people here in this paper. I mean, it's not this is not just some little tiny corner of the academic world. This is a this is a a, uh, a apparently acceptable, viable philosophy. Uh, she says the end the end goal here, the point of the exercise is not to celebrate or to condemn. Hey, maybe you choose monogamy. Cool. But to imagine a future in which no one relational or household model is expected, privileged, or over-invested with hope. <laughs> no hope. No one relational or household model is expected, privileged, or over-invested with hope. Hmm. And we're going to say, we're going to argue pretty specifically here for one household model. So we, uh, we are not going to be in her good graces, I'm sure. She I don't should. know. I mean, this, I'm, I'm finding myself somewhat persuaded mm. this i mean it sounds like happy um joyful delightful way to live your life what's what's not to like about it it's true it's true the more i did listen to a talk she gave on family abolition with a couple of other uh <laughs> people who made me sad mm. just listening to them it made me sad for them uh but i she she does seem to be a more thoughtful person she herself seems, this is not, she's not trolling. She's not, you know, leaving comments on the internet just to, to ire somebody. Mm -hmm. She really seems to believe this stuff and to want it to be the future yeah. of the West and of. Yeah. And to think that that, like to just to play it out and, and to have some imagination about what would that look like? What would a society look like where everybody was given over mm -hmm. to these impulses? Yeah. It, it does not work. It is. It, it falls apart. There are no vows in polyamory. Yeah. And no one's going to be helping you die uh, in a polyamorous relationship. Yeah. Um, mm. Just before I read this last one, it just popped into my head. I, uh, a pastor here locally a few years ago died of ALS. Um, yeah. We both knew him. And he, he got diagnosed, and I think within two years, if I remember right, was gone. And the way that his wife still to this day talks about him, posts about him, mm. Um, it's, it, it has always been a very beautiful thing for me to remember and think about periodically his wife and the way she loved him and cared for him and still even cares for him. Yeah. Uh, that's not happening in polyamory. Yeah. That's happening because two people took Christian vows. That's right. With each other and mm -hmm. before God and man. I want to interject just one thought here real quick. The, as, as you read these, I, I'm imagining listeners hearing this and thinking that, well, okay, sure it is. You say it's a. From a respected university, but these still are fringe ideas that are not really mainstream. Um, but th that's how they become mainstream. Whenever you have a woman that is educated and she is has this prestigious position at a well-known prestigious university, uh, and you give her 30, 40 year career where she is teaching, writing, advocating for these ideas. And she has generations of mm -hmm. young students going through her classrooms. And even if you only persuade a percentage of them, you are now setting them loose in the world with this regressive understanding of sexuality. And, and kids who went to Duke are probably going to be pretty influential in the they're world. Going to be, they're going to be, they're, they at least have doors open to them to be elites of society. And that's where these ideas start. Um, th these aren't blue collar ideas, right? These are elite ideas that are incubated in the cultural centers of, of power in the world and in our, in our nation. And, and they, they make their way down. Yeah. I mean, 
like this or don't like it, we read books and watch TV shows and uh, see commercials and hear turns of phrase that largely start at the elite level and That's then right. work their way down. Yeah. Well, who runs our, who runs the big three entertainment? Right. Um, you know, the CBS, NBC, ABC. You've got, of course, and now you have the new media, right. uh, Netflix, uh, Reed Hastings. Um, yeah, those guys aren't going to Hillsdale. You know what I mean? They're not going to Southern Seminary or Boys College. Yeah. Those guys are going to Duke and they're going to Rutgers and they're going to Princeton and they're going to Yale and they're going to Santa Clara. Yeah. And they're hearing, at least a good portion of the time, ideas like this. That's right. Um, One more from a visiting scholar at Penn. By the way, this is just too good not to share. Penn's motto in Latin is Leges sine moribus vene. Found that out when I was looking this lady up. Uh, in English, that translate to, translates to laws without morals are worthless. <laughs> I just love that that is Penn's motto still. Nobody's found a way to scrub that yet. Oh, great. So you're about to share with us the Christian view. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Penn. Totally Christian. No, this lady, uh, she is a visiting scholar there. She's got a PhD from the University of Manchester and a bachelor and master's from Oxford, um, one of the most prestigious, pre- prestigious universities in the world. Um, so she wrote an article on uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, the coronavirus crisis shows it's time to abolish the family. Mm. And just to, <clears throat> I'll, I'll just read one paragraph from her. She says, even when the private nuclear household poses no direct physical or mental threat to one's person, even if you somehow guys find a family with a mom and dad that isn't a direct physical threat. Should there be one out there? <laughs> no spouse battering, no child rape, and no queer bashing. Okay. The private family qua model of social reproduction still, frankly, sucks. It genders... <laughs> it gender- is, is that the academic term? Uh, absolutely it is. And by the way, social reproduction, I did find out, that is... Uh, Dr. Weeks used that. That's apparently a phrase uh, that... The thing, the only thing the family really does, uh, it is a private institution for social reproduction. So if we can figure out a way to socially reproduce without the family, boom, we will right there. We will have cut off life support from it. Mm, OK, um, but it still frankly sucks. Uh, uh, our author here says Sophie Lewis. That's her name. Sophie Lewis. It genders, nationalizes and races us. It norms us for productive work. It makes us believe we are individuals. She puts quotes around the word individuals. It minimizes costs for capital while maximizing human beings' life-making labor across billions of tiny boxes, each kitted out absurdly with its own kitchen, micro and laundry. It blackmails us into mistaking the only sources of love and care we have for the extent of what is possible. I could have written here, see orgies but I didn't. <laughs> we deserve better than the family. We deserve better than the family. We deserve better than the family. And Sophie Lewis has written uh, a book about the abolition of the family from a feminist perspective uh, that is pretty easily gottable. I found it on Amazon in like two seconds. Um, so she, as an academic, uh, believes that one of her callings in life is to remove this blight upon humanity yeah. that you and I go home to every day. You know, uh, ironically, I was looking up just earlier today, I came across this article. It was a report, and I'll just read you the headline. I actually haven't uh, dug into the article itself, but the headline is says, according to a recent project- projection, 
45% of women are expected to be single and childless by 2030. So 2023, right now, in the next seven years, um, 45% of women, and that, and it's women within, uh, they say, in their prime working years. So that's 25 to 44. Mm-hmm. So in those in that range, 45% of those women are expected to be single and childless. So we're nearing half of women in their window of fertility mm. that will be single and childless and you and in the I next believe, seven years. To be clear, you and I believe the God of the Bible, the God who actually exists, would have us grieve that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That that is not just something to note. It is definitely not something to celebrate. It is something to grieve. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's, uh, that's where we stand in opposition so far. You have a sense of where we stand in opposition to, uh, crazy town USA. Yeah. Let's get to the lay of the land. So in a sentence or two, what is, what is today's episode intended to communicate, intended to argue for, intended to persuade you of, or bolster your support for two ideas. One, the household is God's idea and is designed to be fruitful. So the household is not, as uh, these women, I think all three would, would argue, it's not something that just arbitrarily happened uh, in, in, you know, some sort of historical way, it just kind of cropped up and we've managed to keep, keep it around for a while, but eventually we'll evolve past it if we're yeah. lucky. No, you and I would argue from the beginning, it was God's idea. So we have a God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They relate to each other, love each other. Um, and from that love, the overflow of that love created the world and built a house in which God put his first son, Adam, in a, in a sense, his son, mm-hmm. Adam, Bible calls him that, and then said, it's not good for this son to be alone, made a helper for him and told that marriage, that, that married pair to go forth, uh, subdue, take dominion and be fruitful and multiply. Uh, the task of the garden was theirs together, Adam leading it. The task of naming the animals was Adam's. And he had a helper now for it. None of the animals was fit for him. And having children and making worshipers. And then even beyond those biological children, producing a legacy among people of worshipers mm-hmm. was their task together. God did not design us to design us to be these atomistic little, you know, independent units that kind of walk around the earth, each finding our own path. And maybe for a while we'll run into a few of each other. Yeah. Right. So that's the first idea. Any comments on that? That the, the household is God's keep idea. Going. Okay. Keep going. Second idea is that it is good that we are familial beings designed to take dominion, subdue, and multiply together. It is good that we are familial beings. So that does not mean that to not be in a family is evil. It's not a sin. It is not a sin to not be in a family, or at least it, it is not necessarily a sin right. to not be in a family. Obviously, if a man were to leave his wife and children, yeah, right, that, right. that would be sinful. But it is not inherently or necessarily sinful to not be in a family. But it is good and proper and healthy and in some sense the norm to be a part of a family. Now, everyone's a part of a household, I think we would both say, right? Um, well, it depends on how you define it, but... Okay. but. Not everyone is a part of a family, and we would argue the norm and the good and the thing that should be upheld so that people shoot for it and that when they have it, they honor it, right? That's what you do when you hold something up as good and true. Mm -hmm. You're not saying anyone who doesn't have this is subhuman. What you're doing is you're saying, if you don't have this, 
it is proper and beautiful for you to shoot for it. And if you have it, honor it, protect it, water it, care for it. That's what you're doing when you normalize something. And so we should normalize families. Yeah. Yeah. Genesis 2.18 um, is, I think, the verse that that would apply to what you're saying. Um, If somebody is not in a, if somebody is not in a family, um, it is, it's not a sin, but it would be not good the way God says it's not good that the man should be alone. So Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. God is not saying this man is in sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's under judgment. But rather, he's saying this is something that is um, he wants to remedy because it is something that he wants to um, he wants to supply the good that he lacked. Yeah. So God created a woman for him through whom they would establish their own household. Um, so it is, and, and it is, and it is good to celebrate that, to to uphold it, affirm it, um, to cultivate what we honor through saying this is good. We want to uphold it, and that doesn't it does not entail a sin. Yeah. Or for those that are not part of it. I mean, allow me to 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 be a little you know <clears throat> blunt here, but basically, I think our evangelical society today in in America has removed the "not" from that sentence and basically said it is good to be. Yeah, alive. <laughs> that's right. It is good. Well, yeah, fine. it's totally like, fine, guys. Well, there, there's an impulse to um to love and like to, it, there's an there's a good impulse to not shame people sure. who are single not by their choice, like. Like there are men and women who desire marriage. They want to have a family. They want to have children. Um, and they find themselves in circumstances where they're not married. So they're single and maybe they don't want to be. Um, we want to, we don't want to treat them as though they are living in sin. Correct. The same as Genesis 2.18. Um, Adam was not in sin. Correct. However, uh, in our effort to not uh, kind of judge them or treat them as though they're in sin, we remove the very thing that God said was not good. Right. Which it is good, uh, or it is not good to be alone, and it is good by correlation to be in yeah. a family, to be uh, to have a family, to start a family. It is never loving to tamper with God's word. That's right. And so if you try to act like something God said is not good, is perfectly fine and healthy and should be normalized and a viable option for everybody or for most people, you you are not being loving. You're yeah. you are you're you're playing, you're trying to rearrange God's order of things revealed in his word. Uh, so there are obviously, uh, the Apostle Paul made this plain, people for whom celibacy is the calling and the gift. Uh, mm-hmm. But that is not the norm. We see that in the 66 books of the Bible. It was apparently advisable for a church in Corinth for a time. Mm-hmm. But it is not the norm throughout Scripture. Even Paul himself, a single man, explains, hey, elders should be the husband of one wife. Deacons should be faithful mm-hmm. to their wives. He's He's kind of assuming they're probably going to be married. The elders you appoint, Timothy, Titus, the deacons you appoint, probably going to be married. Why? Because most people are married. Yeah, and of course, in a church, the church is a household. Mm -hmm. So it is a a meta household. It is the same structure of a family household is the structure of a church. It is not exactly the same, but it is, um, the pattern is similar. There you go. So those, that's our lay of the land here. Our, our contention here is that the household is God's idea, that it is an eternal thing, uh, that it's designed to be fruitful, that it's designed to produce things and do good, meaningful work, and that things should result, good, proper, healthy things should result from that household. It's not mm-hmm. merely just a place for entertainment or comfort. Uh, and that it is good that we are familial beings. 
who are designed to take dominion, subdue, and multiply together. All right, let's dive deeply. Michael, in your upcoming graphic novel. I'm not sure if it's a graphic novel. Okay. I, I think we might like animate the whole thing and just make it a, a cartoon. Awesome. Like Dragon Ball Z anime style? Um, yeah, that could work. That could work. That's great. Um, in your upcoming book, you have a section on home economics. I read it yesterday. Uh, it was very helpful. Can you flesh that out a little bit for us? What we're talking about a household that is designed to produce things. It's designed to be fruitful. Yeah. Well, the, the, that section, um, I, I start off that section thinking about a class that was offered when I was in high school and it was a class called home economics. Mm. And, uh, at the time I, I, when I heard the word economics, I thought federal reserve, uh, the economy, wall street money, uh, things like that. And so home economics was a, that was a strange. It's where you set the monetary policy That's right. for <laughs> two park place in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, you just doxed me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm pretty sure in this day and age we can uh, Google anybody's address. But yeah, that <laughs> was not a real. Yeah, you just made that up. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the uh, the home economics class, what they did was it was. I think it was all girls. I don't think there were any boys that were in that class, but they taught homemaking skills in this high school class. So there were some cooking, uh, there was some sewing, um, things of that sort, um, how to, how to run a household. Um, so on retrospect, um, I've since learned that, um, it is an appropriate name for the class given what, um, the word economy means. So the, the English word economy that comes from it's a compound Greek word. Uh, so the first part is oikos, and that means house. The yogurt, right? Oikos. There is a yogurt called oikos. That's a Greek yogurt. Um, mm. So there you go. And nomos, which means law. So you have oikos, nomos, which means house law. Um, now, households can be structured in different ways, different ways to meet their needs. So it's, every household is going to have its own house law. Uh, or a household code, a rule for that house. So it, it originally, the originally the economy referred to. Here's how our household runs. So the economy of the of the Wade Thomas household is going to be how do you run things? How what is your law? What are your rules? What are the ways that you relate to your children, to your wife? How does this all fit together? Um, and there's going to be every every household is going to have its own personality. But faithful households are going to share a similar purpose and structure, um, and that is there's a productive element, and that is that is one thing that we're going to be talking about as we move forward. Um, but some of the other elements they have in common are the ties of love, loyalty, service. Uh, as they grow, they support each other, and ultimately, the way God designed it is that that's how they exercise dominion in the world. Mm. God exercises dominion through households. Um, so the, I guess back to the, uh, to the point I was making earlier, how is it that the word, uh, oikos nomos economy, how did it come to refer to, um, money, the, the marketplace? Right. And the reason for that is that the productivity of the household has been outsourced to the marketplace. So there is the household itself is no longer very productive. Those things have been moved into the marketplace where work is commodified and monetized. When when would you say that that happened? Uh, the Industrial Revolution is when 
people point to as is that what Rage Against the Machine is getting at with their name? Are they making the same argument you're making? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, the band Rage Against. The I know the band Rage Against the Machine, but how does that? I don't know. It just seemed like they were anti-economy, anti-capitalism, anti. Really? I think so. I don't really know their music. Um, um I mean, I know what style. Gorilla music Radio is. is the one that comes to mind. I don't think I know okay. that one. Well, uh, they probably weren't. You guys probably aren't. I, I, are they similar to Carmen? I, I know Carmen. Absolutely. Yes, or they're identical. Jars of Clay. Uh-huh. I've, I've DC Talk, Newsboys. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now They're okay. in that same mold. Same mold. Okay, Rage yeah. Against the Machine equals Newsboys. Okay. Exactly correct. You got there it. There you go. So the Industrial Revolution uh, introduced what? Uh, I'm thinking factories. I'm thinking smokestacks. I'm thinking you go downtown, you mm-hmm. clock in, you... It, it, Am I am I right here? Is that what? Yeah, the Industrial Revolution was it, it was a technological advance where um, we were able to unlock new powers of technology, and in so doing, you had to have people relocate from doing work in their household in what we would call today like homesteading. Okay, um, but you had to take that labor and relocate it to a factory. So most of human history, I'm at home, I'm farming, I'm making things with my son or daughter. Maybe I'm a carpenter and I'm apprenticing my son. You're a smith. You have a trade. Okay. Then we get to 1700s, 1800s, somewhere along these lines. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, a majority of people, the men, the man is going downtown. He's working yep. in a factory. And the home is now an address. It is becoming more of an address that we all retire to at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, that's, the, that's what was pro- perhaps the most consequential cultural change brought about by the Industrial Revolution is that work was relocated out to the factory from the home. So as you said, before that happened, there was mother and father, husband and wife, and children worked together. So if you think about old Little House on the Prairie mm-hmm. TV show, it's like I, I, I envision that because I think of, you know, you had Ma and Pa and they would, mm-hmm. you know, they would do the work around the farm. And then they would go into town. And what was the family that run the little shop? You had that obnoxious uh, girl. Oh was it Nellie? Nellie Olson. 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 That's right. The Olson yeah. family. Okay, so the Olson family, mom, pa. It's free on Amazon Prime right now, guys. Is it really? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if I'd call that free. Uh, okay, yeah. Fair. <laughs> uh, you do pay for enough. Amazon Prime. Fair enough. Clearly, I do not do a great job of managing our household. <laughs> uh, you come home, sweetheart. Yeah. This is free. Amazon right? Prime is free, right, honey? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wait, it's free. Well, you have the Olson family. So it's a different household doing a different trade, different business, and they run the town store. Um, but everybody, but what you see in that environment, pre-industrialized, was households did work together. Yeah. Um, and so they... Mom and dad worked together. Children supported the family business. Of course, they'd go to school and they'd do things, but the 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 center of enterprise was the household. Now, industrialization, you you plop a factory into that town and that factory needs a workforce to come to that site mm-hmm. and because they're doing big industrial things, steel mills and that sort of thing. Um, in that environment, the husband has to leave the household. And what that did is that removed his presence from the house. And that left mother home raising the children. Yeah. And whenever, and it was, a, I think that environment was not good. So I don't look at industrialization as a good thing. I don't think it is, I think it's a neutral thing. Okay. I don't see it as a, a moral evil nor a moral good. I just think it's a thing. Um, but, but that makes it a challenge. It, it does make it a challenge. But the, the effects of the industrial revolution are it's a it's both good and bad so there are good things we're recording this podcast on a computer using microphones and distributing over the internet these are all technologies that were enabled by the industrial revolution 
Um, I mean, I'm assembling a jet aircraft while we record. So yeah. And, and a a fine, fine flying machine. It is young man. Thank you. Um, but, but those are, those are good things. But the bad thing is that the way that it caused the household itself to fracture. Yeah. And so you, you've eliminated the productivity of the household. You've separated the, the, the work of the household and you've outsourced it. You've moved it to the factory. And so now the household doesn't have work to do. So mm-hmm. the, the husband's labor is monetized, commodified. He gets a check. And with that check, he doesn't grow his own food. He doesn't slaughter his own animals. Maybe he does. But because he's spending hours and hours at the factory, he's not home to do those things. Yeah. And the mother is not going to be able to do that and raise the children. So he gets a check and then he goes to the butcher, he goes to the grocery store, he goes to the producer and they, he gathers his food and brings Other guys who have been impacted by the industrial revolution. Yes. And that, that is a phenomena that if we don't, when that goes unacknowledged in our understanding of how men and women relate to one another and the fallout from the industrial revolution, um, we miss a lot. Okay. We really miss a lot because productivity is the way God originally designed the household to be a center of enterprise work. So one of the things it's obvious, it's becoming obvious to me that we're doing with current reality is, hey, here is this thing. Now, so far, most of the things we've, we've pointed out have been negative, but this one is, is a, apparently neutral. I think we're in agreement there. But hey, here's this thing, this giant behemoth that you all may not even realize is there. And we want to point it out so that you can take account for it, yeah. take account of it. And if it is negative, in the case of the you know, feminism or the LGBTQ revolution, f- combat it fight it, protect against it, work against it. Or in the case of the industrial revolution, it's a neutral thing. Be aware of it and take stock of it because you, you're not going to be able to do what God wanted you to do with your family. Yeah. If you just go along with eyes down yeah. on the conveyor belt here of the industrial revolution without it all. Yeah. For instance, so I, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Is what you just described, which seems to me self-evident, yes, that, that all of what you just described happened. Is that a part of uh, a family essentially right now really from the TV shows I've seen and the movies I watch, a family is essentially just love and affection and sentiment. Yes. That's it. So and would, would you say that's a part of it? And does that how does that specifically then play out? What 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 negative effects are you seeing from families just being sentiment and love and affection? Or, or I would even say feelings love, not because. Yeah, yeah, not not like the love in the in the fully biblical sense, right? But love in a more sentimental sense. Yeah. Well, the way when you have a household that isn't productive, the th- one of the points that I argue in my book is that unproductive households are less stable. Okay. Because work is a better relational glue than sentiment. Okay. Because sentiment is more, uh, it, it is more self centered. It is like, I want this from you. I, it, is, it is feelings and it's fickle. Um, work is, I need you, you need me. We are interdependent. And work tends to glue households together. Is that why you see such loyalty, you think, between military units, football teams, things like that? I, I think that certainly, yeah, I think that certainly is a factor. I've not thought of that before. But I think absolutely, there is, there is a sense of, I need you and you need me. And when you have interdependence, you have a bond, a connective tissue that holds people together. Okay. But now the way the way that it works is that we we view the household through a modern lens, and the modern lens is mom, dad, couple kids, and a minivan. Mm. And when you think of the household that way, and then if if you're a Christian and you approach Scripture that way, 
and you read modern assumptions back into scripture, what you're going to do is you're going to miss household life that is embedded in the commands of scripture. Yeah. So I think one of the best examples of this is everybody, um, uh, well, maybe not everybody knows this, but there's Ephesians 5 is sort of a go-to text mm-hmm. when you think about the relationship of a husband and wife. Um, and that's wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. We just got canceled. <laughs> I think so. And then the next text or the next verse, couple verses later, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we know that. And so whenever you isolate that text, what we think about is, okay, that we have a marriage. So we, we, uh, I use this and whenever I preach a wedding, um, we think in terms of the sentimental romantic relationship between a husband and wife. And if you, if you think that's all it is, She's going to have her career. Mm. He's going to have his career. Maybe they'll have a couple kids. We'll send them off to school. If they want to. If they want to. But if, if that's all you think about, then you think, like, why does he get to be in charge? And why does she have to submit to him? But we stop reading at that text. But you see, it's a, this Ephesians 5 and 6 is a household code. Because he moves on to children, yes. mom servants. Right. Yeah. So Ephesians 5, 22, wives and husbands. I'm just reading the chapter or the little ESV headers. Yeah. You get to the very next section, Ephesians 6, 1, you have children and parents. So that's, you start off with husband and wife, their relationship. Mm -hmm. Then you move to what is another household relationship? Okay, it's children and parents. So we're fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Well, then you keep going, verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and so on. And he talks about the work. So you have in a household, not just mom and dad and kids, a household included in the ancient world this extended network of relationships. You look at Genesis chapter 15. Abraham and the... No, it's chapter 13, where Abraham goes out with his 318 fighting men. Yeah. Trained in his house. And it was Abraham's house. Yeah. And that was before Sarai had had children. Mm -hmm. So his household included 318 fighting men, and they didn't even have their own children yet. So a household was this large enterprise. And so when you think of headship and submission in terms of not only is, are they husband and wife, but they are also doing work together. And in any place where you're doing work, it's more easy to recognize you got to have a chain of command. And we don't have a problem with having a boss at work because we think work is where important things right. get done. This is where things happen. Things this get is, done. Yeah. Things get produced. Yeah. So I produce deadlines. things. So if I, my boss tells me, hey, you got to have that report turned in by Friday because, you know, HR is going to look at it and then it's going to go to the sales team and whatnot. And then you're like, yeah, I got to do my part. I got to pull my weight. So of course I need to do what my boss says. In the ancient world, you give these headship and submission commands within the context of a household. It makes sense. Right. The husband. He's got to work a trade. He's got to provide for all of us. And the wife, she needs to help him. She has something to manage too. Yeah, she's got to manage. And they are working his trade together. So the headship and submission commands, those things are all part of a household code that makes sense when a family is productive. They're working. But why do you need, why do you need a head at 123 Main Street to watch Netflix a few hours at night when we all right. come home? And what does headship even mean in that context? Yeah. Does that mean, okay, he... He holds the remote control and chooses the channel because, well, he's my, he's my head. I got to submit to him. And that's how I often hear this conversation play out. Um, and it, if I'm a, let's say you are a woman. Um, I don't believe you're identifying as a woman. Today, not yet. But, you know, let's say how, how might a woman regard those texts if she's not thinking of the productivity of a household? It does seem arbitrary. 
And the point that I'm making is that it isn't arbitrary because the assumption of scripture is that households are doing something because that's how they take dominion. So we see that clearly in Genesis, that, that that's beautiful and very helpful. Uh, in Adam and Eve, then we see it in Abraham. I was thinking as you were talking too, even Abraham and Elimelech, his servant, has this loyalty to him. He puts his hand under Abraham's thigh. Yes, I'll make sure your son marries the kind mm-hmm. of wife you want. Like there's this kind of uh, just deep uh, in the fabric of who they are, loyalty to each other that, yeah, I'm sure was forged in that battle to get Lot back. Yes. And in the moving from Ur to Canaan. And uh, like all of these these things this household did and accomplished and and uh, you know, these storms they weathered together. Yeah. That, that bonded yeah. together much more than if we're doing the caricature middle of the bell curve American experience right now, which is I go to work, she goes to work. Our kids go to a school down the street. Somebody picks them up at the end of the day. We all get home maybe around six or 7 PM. We eat some food and we watch a TV show together and then we all go to bed. Yeah. Like that does not, that's not the biblical vision of a household. Now, I would not say that's sinful or wrong. I would say that's the world that we live in. And so it's a, it's a matter of how can we retrieve the, the elements of productivity in a household to strengthen our households. Um, we can't turn back the clock and live 300 years ago. I don't know that it would be good or we'd want to. But it is, a, it is a matter of understanding the world we live in, understanding how it's different from the biblical world so that way we can apply the principles of scripture where we are now. Yeah. So let's uh, let, let's take a look then. We, we've we've dove pretty deeply into the industrialization. Can you describe for me uh, your your book talked a little bit about homemaking? Yeah. What what that actually is as a vocation? What does the word actually mean? Why I'm sure you could give us some good uses and some bad uses of the word. What is homemaking uh, and and why should we care? Well, the, the word homemaking is, the way that we use it now is from a, it's, it came about in the 1860s, um, and it was a word that was coined to describe women who, they were, they were working from home while their husbands left home to do factory work. So the word probably didn't exist prior to husbands having to leave. Right, and it didn't need to. Because prior to that time, prior, prior to industrialization, uh, they both worked from home. Everybody was a homemaker. Yeah. So husbands and wives were homemakers. And I would argue, um, I would argue that homemaking is, is the calling of the household. Okay. So whenever you, you look at um, uh, Genesis 1, where God said, be fruitful, multiply. It's Genesis 1, mm-hmm. um, 26, 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Mm-hmm. So this is a command given to the man and the woman. And the be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that's a command for multiplication. That's mm-hmm. growing, have children, grow your household. And it just flows right into and subdue it and have dominion. So whenever you think of that, that's, that is the way that humans, men and women, exercise dominion, the way God called us to in the garden and, and, or in, from the beginning. We do that through, through work, okay. through, through establishing households. So the vocation of homemaking is a, vo- is a dominion type of vocation, and that is the way that we take dominion. They were called to make a home right there. Here's this garden. Here's this wilderness. Here's this, this area that is good but is not yet subdued, does not yet have anybody cultivating it. You now, you two, go under Adam's headship 
and subdue it. Right. Build something there. Yeah. So there's not a home. Then you two come in and by my grace, you make a home. You will make a home. Okay. Now, the way we use that word now, um, if you're filling out a form or whatever, uh, and, you know, I'm sure your wife does this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what's your occupation? What's your vocation? Um, she would, if there's a box for homemaking or something like that, that's the box she would check. And what that does is that presumes that it is her job. She's the one making the home and the husband's out doing something important. She's stuck at home. Whereas I, I, the biblical vision is that men and women, we make homes together. That is, that is our calling mm. in the creation mandate. She but, does it right now, post-industrial revolution, by raising our children, teaching our children, making sure this place is orderly and stocked and mm-hmm. ready to go. I do. I participate in homemaking by earning a living so that we can yeah. keep this place running. But we are both homemakers in yeah. these different spheres or strains. Yeah, it is an unfortunate byproduct of industrialization that the homemaking work you do and the homemaking work your wife does is now separated into two independent spheres. There, there's a lot of pain points there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think if, if it is possible to reunite those spheres, um, I think family businesses where husband and wife do them together, there's a lot of advantages there uh, because they're able to to get some of the pre-industrial benefits mm-hmm. of homemaking that the way that it used to be, but that's not always possible. So we have to live in the world that is. Uh, but the vocation of homemaking is not something that is the wife's job, while the husband's job is to have a career. It's like, well, his career is um, the his career is what he uses to provide. It's a tool with which he will help make this home. It'd almost be like if we only called offensive players in the NFL players. And we called the guys who are on defense something else. Yeah. It's like, no, you, you're both players. You're both yeah. a part of this team attempting to win, to achieve its goal. Yeah. But you're doing it in two slightly distinct ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as obvious now how you're working together. Yeah. It, it used to be more obvious uh, in the ancient world because it's like, you know, he's a, he's a lumberjack. Right. And she's the one that carries the firewood, you yeah. know, over to the pile or whatever. It's like, there's they worked together and it was obvious, but now it's like he has a career working for general electric and she is a homemaker at home. Are they working together? Well, yes, but it's not quite so clear and evident how they are contributing. And what, what it ends up happening is that if, if, if you don't recognize that you're building a home together, the time in your home together becomes more of a, the home becomes a place of entertainment. This is, we come together, we share a meal, we watch some TV, and that's what we do. And yeah. there's there's not a whole lot of productivity that happens. And the children aren't involved in it either. Yeah, which, okay, so this would be a great, I, I wanted at some point for us to be able to, to give some practical tips. So I think this is a, a great spot for us to do it. Um, my question is, what kinds of productive work can, right now, our typical listener do together as a family? What sorts of ways could they actually do what we're advocating for? And what, what we're saying the Bible advocates for. The Bible advocates for households to build, to make homes, to take dominion, to subdue, mm-hmm. to be fruitful. What specifically could our listeners do? Yeah. I, well, I, I think the way that it, the, the, the baseline, we'll just start at the baseline, is uh, multiplication. Okay. So when a husband and wife, that's the one work that they must and always do together as Adopt much a cat. as possible. Got it. Adopt a cat. We're good. <laughs> We've done it. We went to Petland. That's not what you mean? 
No, no. Okay, no. okay. <laughs> it, it it is the it is having children. So it's like you're one flesh physically, sexually, and that one flesh union produces a child, and then it literally produces another one flesh, a a child, and you have to raise that child together. Now there's it's their 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 responsibilities will not be identical, but they are both participating in raising that child. So they're working together to raise a child. That is baseline. There are other things that that can be done together. So if let's say a husband and wife can start a business together, if there's there's some way where their careers can line up a little uh, more fully, I think there's a lot of advantages there. So what I'm saying now is not a moral imperative to where you must do this. I'm saying these are things that are good to do, but it is not sin mm-hmm. if you don't do them, right? It's not realistic. So if somebody has uh, a job working, you know, at a, you know, at a, a manufacturing plant somewhere, it, he, he's not going to be able to take his wife with him to work. Or, or that's not realistic. Yeah. Um, but if they are able to find ways to bring productive enterprise back into the home and do things together, there is a benefit to the family. Um, so some other examples that are practical. Um, I have a friend who. Um, who runs an Airbnb. And so he owns the property. He manages, and he also flips houses. He, he, he's involved in, in real estate and various sorts. Um, but the example that comes to mind is he runs this Airbnb and his wife helps him manage it. And whenever they have a cleaning, she, she takes care of the cleaning. Um, he manages the reservations and mm-hmm. setting up the finances. Um, I think they'll both communicate with guests, something like that. They're doing something together, and that binds them together more deeply. And this isn't just a hobby. They're not just doing, they're not just like, you know, doing a puzzle together. Yeah, it's, it's part of their income. Yeah, okay. No, I, I know of other examples where, um, where a wife would have a business that she runs from her home. Um, and I, th- I think a lot of women do that and, and can be very successful. And, you know, they're, and, Especially during COVID, we saw a an increase of people who are working from home. Um, that has its own complications. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if some people may not be able to handle it as well, but I think if, when you can, there there is a there is a sense of being in the same place together um, that can be that can be beneficial. Yeah. So I think uh, it. We're in a we're in a situation now in 2023 where it is normal for a woman to go get a four-year degree and then get a white-collar job. And I do think that normalization is a problem. That that idea that this is just as good and proper as uh trying to position yourself to marry a man who is worth being married to for the rest of your life and having children with him, mm-hmm. and then using your feminine gifts to help build this home. The idea that either one of those is just as good and they're both equally pursuable uh, in wisdom is a problem. Mm-hmm. So if you're raising young girls, uh, one thing I would advocate for is to commend to them explicitly, especially as they get older. My oldest daughter is 11. My youngest daughter is four. And then I've got one in between them. But they're hearing from mom and dad quite a bit that the, the highest calling God likely has for their lives is to raise children and submit to a godly man and to, by their own gifting, through the power of the Spirit, produce a household that is a multi-generational dent Mm -hmm. for the kingdom of God. Um, 
rather than to get a an executive job at P&G. Yeah. Uh, and, and, to, and to constantly make sure that they sense the beauty of that and the, yes. and the worth of that and the dignity of that and the attractiveness of that. Yeah, I think that's key because you're wanting you're, you're wanting to show them that this is a beautiful thing and not merely a um, a second class a drudgery. Right. Uh, you're consigned. This is your lot in life. You're stuck. Man was not good until he had one of you. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a precious gifting given to 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 female to yeah. know um, that Adam was incomplete apparently in some way until he had it wasn't one of good. Me. Right. It wasn't good. Um, so that's as you're raising young daughters, I think that's one thing you can do. A couple of practical things uh, that come to mind. So the home business thing that you brought up, my wife has been able to raise money for our adoption through um, through through knitting things, creating things, mm-hmm. uh, crocheting things. So that there I think that I've I've seen a number of women, especially yeah, you said since covid. Uh, but in our circles here locally here in Cincinnati, uh, even before covid, there were several women I knew. Uh, and and heard of who had contributed, you know, in a pretty sizable way to their household income through these extra channels. Yeah, uh, and it's it depending on the the type of business, it's actually something that kids can be involved in. And now you're building yeah. loyalty with the kids. So my kids know the things that my wife creates. She just spent like three months knitting a a blanket, and my kids saw it all the time as she yeah. was creating this thing. Yeah. Um, but I think the idea you, you mentioned loyalty, it's good to to think consciously and might maybe even be a point of emphasis in the family conversation is we de- we need to depend on each other. Right. Um, and so if you if you were to ask, you ask most people, what do you depend on your family for? Yeah. What might they say? And I think a lot of people would have a hard time coming up with very much substantive. Yeah. Most likely they would say, I depend on my family for. Uh, you know, for visits, for companionship, um, you know, shoulder to cry on, go to my dad for advice, something like that. But we, we, we don't really depend on our families for tangible, concrete things. Again, not sin, but that's just the way things are. Yeah. And the way that we can strengthen the bonds of, of our family is to find ways that we are dependent on one another, that we're contributing. Now, now you, you change the question, what do you depend on the government for? Now we're starting to see what has been outsourced away from the family. Yeah. Because a lot of people say, well, I would depend on the government for Social Security income uh, whenever I reach retirement age. I count on the government uh, for my, you know, to supplement my uh, bills for uh, medical expenses and that sort of thing through Medicare, Medicaid. Um, There's a lot of things that we can find tangible ways that we depend on the government. And that shows how we've shifted that responsibility. So to recapture some of that in the home, I mean, with, with, for me, right now, the way where way my family operates, it's pretty small. Um, we depend on each other for. Um, I t- we tell the kids like, hey, can you can you serve your sister? Can you serve your brother by by picking this up for them? Uh, they're going to need you to help out with that. My daughter, she's the she's the only one that's of a driving age, so yeah. we depend on her to uh, for transportation. Um, I just hired my three sons um, to to do some work with me this past uh, Saturday. Um, and I told him, uh, like, I'm like, boys, I want to, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you premium wage. Nice. Um, Bitcoin, you pay him in Bitcoin. No, okay. <laughs> I paid him 10 bucks an hour. Oh, wow. Um, but I'm like, I'll pay you premium wage and I'm paying you for not just the work you do because you're not skilled labor. Mm. I'm paying you for your attitude. Um, and so like, we're going to work and I want to boss you around and you're going to do stuff. And 
and it was a way for for them to uh, participate uh, with me in work that I was doing. And I think working together is a it is a glue. It's a relational yeah. glue. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that's a useful intellectual exercise that you brought up about the government. Uh, for the typical person right now, it's like um, if your father died, you would cry, but if the government went away, you would die. Like, <laughs> that's right. And that's you know, you go back to pre-industrial revolution. I'm I'm thinking of you know families who went out into the middle of nowhere together. It it would be the it would be the reverse. Like they may barely feel it if the government were to collapse, but if dad died, we're all screwed. Um, cause they depended on because him. they depended on him and, and the same thing for mom and the same thing for the children, you know, the children, at least as a composite, I mean, these are our laborers. These are the people who help us make this life possible. One particular arena where I think we've, we've outsourced to the government and it's just totally normal is education. Yeah. So like, it's not my job to teach my kids. These kids God gave me, it's the government's job. I pay you taxes. So you will teach my kids when yeah. they get home. I want them having learned their math with you and learned how the world works with you so that I can be left alone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So re and, and I do think some measure of whatever, whatever educational method right now is being employed in your house. If you're a parent bringing back education into your home to where you and the, as the mother and father are the primary sources of how this kid is learning yes. about what the world is and who God is. That's a that's a big one. So we started a non-tax, uh, non-charter school in our house. And that household school, which is a is a pretty. I mean, you you come over and watch us do it. You wouldn't even realize you're in the middle of a school. It's it's there's not a lot of red tape involved. Yeah. Um. But that enterprise <clears throat> that has its own routines and its own rhythms, my wife and I do together. That has absolutely bonded loyalty among all of us. Yeah. Um. It pays dividends. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, the family that works together stays together. Yeah. Any other practical tips we could offer our people uh, for re, uh, you know, getting some of this productivity and fruitfulness back into the household? Um, I, I would say a good place to start is chores. Okay. It's uh, it, it, in my in my house. I just we each child has set chores, um, and just after dinner, you have your after dinner chores. Um, and so they know what it is and it's just an expectation mm -hmm. that they follow through with that. Um, we're not, uh, not perfect at it. And in fact, I'm, as I'm saying it, I feel like a hypocrite cause I'm like, I haven't been very consistent on that lately and I need to, I need to step up my game. We're both hypocrites all the time. So, but it's a, but they even, and, and I've read a study about this. It's been years ago, so I don't re recall the source, but I read a study of, that was the, a positive correlation with children to have chores, mm. just having chores. It doesn't matter so much what they are, but the the participation in contributing to household life is a positive benefit for kids. Yeah. So I think that's a great place to start. That was Sesame Street. I know that for sure because I remember that episode, that study on chores. Are you kidding me? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but no, that absolutely is true. So uh, there is something about, you know, I used to really struggle with... Um, needing someone else and being dependent on someone else. And it was pride and it was vanity. And I, I was missing, especially in my early days of being married, I was missing the goodness and, and the, the God-authored uh, uh, beauty of a man needing his wife and of the mm -hmm. wife needing her husband. And I was perfectly comfortable being needed. Yeah. But the idea that I needed someone else and that 
that they're working for me, me, not just like the family, but doing things for me actually helped them love me more and bonded them to me. Uh, that mm. was something I had to learn. So yeah. if there's anybody here listening who struggles with that, uh, be encouraged that that is good for the relationship. It is good for the relationship for somebody to sweat for you yeah. and sacrifice for you. And it's good for you to receive that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, it, it does. It, it's, a, it's, it's a lubricant for the relationship yeah. and the loyalty. I got a couple of statistics here that uh, are depressing. So the, these are from the United <laughs> Census Bureau. So this is the U.S. Department of, Com Department of Commerce, our you know, 10-year census that we have to do per the Constitution, if I remember government and civics correctly. Every 10 years. Uh, every 10 years. So here, here's a, a couple of data points from them. Um, right now, married households, as a percentage of total households, are less than 50%. In 1947, it looks like, 46 or 47, they were almost 80%. Almost 80% of all households were married households. Okay. Almost all, the, the percentage of total households that so were, a household is not defined by marriage no a household no. is people living at the same yes address. a household is a okay. is a, a head count of human beings living at one address okay um that was almost 80 percent in 1946 or 1947 and it is down to less than 50 percent in 2022 so less than half of the households you drive by uh, are married households but that doesn't mean there's only one person living there. Right, correct. And in most cases, there aren't. The average household size, I believe, is above two in the United States. So, so you got a couple people. You got a couple people. In the average house. And the average household size is 2.6. The average household size in the United States is 2.6. So you're seeing more than one person in most households, but significantly less than half are married. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so that not... Not, uh, not something to be lauded. And then this, and I, I found this, you know, pretty instructive myself. They called, the, the Census Bureau called this chart, the rise of living alone. So even though we have 2.6 people living in the average household, we have, uh, we have over, it looks like, uh, 35 million, almost 40 million one-person households. And I think the, the primary population they're being affected is the elderly. Yes. So we have lots of people who are unmarried, uncared for. Uh, they're a widower or a widow. They're an aging parent, and they are living by themselves. Yeah. Um, and Scripture talks about that, and it's part of the household code. Yeah, talk about that. It, uh, was it First Timothy, right? We're supposed to care for the widows? It's First Timothy 5. And First Timothy five, I think, is is a treasure trove of household instruction and and understanding how the household in the ancient world operated. Because you can see what does Paul assume in in the instruction. I'm turning there in my Bible now, but First Timothy five, he's got instructions for the church, and he and he talks about um, caring for widows. Mm -hmm. And the instruction for a widow is is don't overly burden the church. In caring for widows. So the assumption is that when you have a widow, it is an emergency. Okay. Because this is a woman who is vulnerable because she does not have a head of household that can provide for her. And she can't just go get a job at Walmart. Right. Um, she had no means of, of providing for herself. So a widow truly is um, in a desperate situation. So somebody's supposed to care for this indigent person. Right. Yeah. Um, 
but the but but Paul says, don't burden the, the church with her needs on, unless there's no household that can do so. Okay. So the presumption is like you need to have uh, her her children uh, or some other fel- uh, relatives that can take take her in. And of course, the presumption there is is not that she's just going to be laying around on the couch watching TV, but that she will become a productive contributing mm. member of that household. She's going to help take care of the kids. She's going to help with meal planning. She's going to help with all of that. Um, she's going to contribute to the household, but be attached to it. Now, if if she doesn't have anybody, um, so this is First uh, Timothy 5, 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So she's praying like mad because she doesn't know where the next meal is going to come from. But and so that's who that's who we're supposed to care for. Mm. And he goes on to say, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that's one of those bludgeon verses that a lot of uh, pastors will use to say, "Hey, men, you got to get out there and earn a living and provide for your house," and that's. Fair enough. That 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 applies, but what Paul was saying in that text was like there there is a a sense that a head of household needs to work in such a way that he can provide for extended family members and bring them into his household. Now that's not always that's not always reasonable in the modern world because our houses themselves aren't built in such a way that we can um, just take in unlimited number. Of, it, it could be it could be really uh, difficult, but the the point here is that there are instructions for caring for more than just mom, dad, and kids, okay. but it's extended household members. And then he goes on to talk about uh, widows, um, let her be enrolled, and it gives, it gives the age. Um, and then he talks about uh, younger widows. And, and Paul says that they should not be enrolled, but verse 14 of 1 Timothy 5, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So he's saying that when you have younger widows, like they're of a marriageable age, they're uh, of a of an age where they could still bear children. So rather than enrolling them as dependents upon the church, mm-hmm. the household of the church, rather encourage these young women to get married so that they can they can build up a household. Mm-hmm. So it is bad that we have normalized. It is someone else's job to take care of grandma and grandpa. Yeah. It is bad that that is normal, the default, the assumed uh, trajectory. When grandma or grandpa need it, whether it's the government or some other structure that we can get them to, someone else's responsibility to take care of them. Yeah. And that normalization is an expectation on the part of all parties. So there are... My wife and I have talked about her aging parents who um, would be the most likely to need help if one of the spouses were to die. Um, but we know they don't live in our, the same city as us. Mm. So that would entail for that, the other one to, to move, move to where we live. And they, that just ain't going to happen. <laughs> Neither one of them. Yeah. Are, they're in Cleveland and they ain't leaving Cleveland. And we live in a house, a, a townhouse that doesn't have a bedroom on the main floor. and my mother-in-law is unable to go up and downstairs. So there, there was, it's there, we would have to purchase property that 
is not even connected to our townhouse even to be able to take so there there are modern things that because we are so far removed culturally from the expectation of caring for your parents that we don't even think about that that's not even taken into account and the homes we buy the homes we build the way we order our lives the cities we live in that's so far removed so i i would not say that somebody that has a parent that is in a nursing home i would say that person is in sin but i like the way you say it it, it is not good that that it has been normalized where nobody even thinks very rarely do people think i should take in my parents mm-hmm. um but it Let's get to a point again where that is the assumption. Yeah, I, 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 it's not it's not something that is impossible, but you have to plan your life that you yeah. have to plan your life taking that into account when you're younger. So to your point, yes, yeah, Sarah and I, I don't think either of my parents or her parents listen to the show, so this shouldn't be a problem. Um, but uh, we when we got married, we first uh, agreed pretty pretty early on that any any of the four parents we needed a place to live uh, that we would prefer them living with us than going to a nursing home. Um, and the reason there was, uh, as, as we were studying scripture and trying to figure out how to do our family in the most biblical way, that, that seemed to be the godliest position to take early on and to just sort of build into the assumptions of what our, our own middle age would look like. Like, hey, there's a really good chance one of these four or more of the multiple of these four are going to live with us. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's just always been on our radar as a possibility. And that, that was informed from the Bible's teachings on what you are to do to your parents. That wasn't just a sentimental, yeah, you know, um, it is thinking more in terms of household than family, right? The word family has been emptied of its, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same meaning. Yeah. And so now that you bring that up, let's unmask some sophistry. Uh, right. I was watching a, so the DW or DW, not the DW is the German version of BBC. Um, I think D stands for Deutschland. I don't know what W stands for, but you know how in Britain they have the BBC. It's I, I know the BBC. I, I'm, I'm trying to think. So the DW, this, this is something that's, it's broadcast in German. So right. I would never have seen it. Well, but it's on, so they have it in English, I think, because Either this is a repackaged one for PBS here in America, or because most Germans speak English. I think most Germans speak English as a second language. Okay. But either way, there is a an English-speaking version of this thing on PBS every night, uh, here locally in Cincinnati, at least. So I've watched the DW, uh, you know, probably once or twice a month. And on a particular, so this is a, a public, a government-sanctioned network. You know, this is, this is like... Here you're gonna get the straight dope, German people. They had a uh, the straight dope. Yeah. <laughs> Is, are you trying to be relevant yeah, right I now? Am. It's I like, am. hey kids, yeah, that's right. Hello, fellow that's kids. Right. You guys this like skateboarding, straight, right? This is straight dope, right? <laughs> um, yeah, man, I'm 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 old and and uh, proud of it at this point, I guess. So <laughs> this was a little documentary uh, about two men who had so-called married married. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe that's possible, but. Uh, each other, each other. Okay. They they had formed a so-called marriage with each other and uh, had two children produced through a surrogate woman. Mm. So these are twins and adopted them, brought them home and raised them in their uh, in their supposed household. Uh, and I, I wrote down this quote from the little documentary. A family doesn't have to be a mother and a father to be full of love. Mm. 
That sounds so sweet. I'm going to read that again, and I want you to have an ear what you, for what sophistry you hear in that sentence. A family doesn't have to be a mother and a father to be full of love. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're redefining, they're using the word family uh, in a, so it's, a, it's like the word family, uh, biblically speaking, yeah. refers to household life, father, mother, like, you know, the, the relational blood relatives. And of course, there's adoption and there's things like that. The word has broadened in meaning to where anything and everything could be a family. You know, you isn't chosen family a phrase now, I think like it like, hey, I'm 35 and I'm single. But, you know, my best buddy, we play Call of Duty all the time. He's my chosen family. I've not heard that. OK, um, but maybe I'm just not not hip on my pop culture. We're both old uh, references. I'm 10 years older than you. So you call yourself. Yeah, old. but you act younger than me. Like you're 10 years older than me, but you act, and I don't mean like in an immaturity way. I just mean like pop culture, <laughs> clothing wise, you act like four years That's younger. That's because I'm dope. Is that, that, do the kids still say dope? I don't know. Okay. Uh, well, you used it. I was trying to. Uh, tight, <laughs> I think. Hype. Those are. Hype. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. All right. So family. The word family, um, it has, it has a concrete meaning, blood relatives, but it's been broadened um, to include any any sort of relationship that we want to add meaning to it okay so you buy a you buy a uh you know an accord at the honda dealership and as you're driving off the lot the salesman could say welcome to the honda family and he has he doesn't know you he doesn't know anything about you but he's wanting to evoke imagery of mm. inclusion belonging of of, of importance, some significance, saying this is a relationship. Really, they're trying to build brand loyalty yeah. by using a word that connotes loyalty. I'm going to borrow all the credibility and affection yes. and fuzzies from this word. It's like a parasite. Yeah. I want to just suck all of the meaning out of the word where it came from, and I want to stick it in this marketing ploy. That's good. Um, and make it more of a... Uh, I will use it to, to get you to come back and get your oil changed here mm. and get repeat business. Um, but... So, so then they're doing that, and now they're re, relocalizing it, but now under a new definition where family now means two dads uh-huh. or two, two moms or, or two moms. So it is, uh, it is like it, it needed to be broadened in order to be redefined and, and reapplied back in this family structure. Now it's like it's almost like this this edgy new way of using this word uh, family to apply to something that isn't actually family but it's close enough yeah. to where we can borrow all the capital from the real family as god designed it until so, we've drained it until we've drained all that capital at yeah. some point well and that's what happens you know yeah. it's like you 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 empty of it if it's all of its meaning and then you move on to the next word that has meaning and you start using that like the like we've done with the word racism you know, yeah yeah everything is racist all, yeah and since everything is racist nothing. now nothing is racist right. and so if everything can be family nothing is family there is one place, as you said that, where scripture affirms the fi- many places, but one that co- popped into my head where it, it affirms the fixed components, just mm-hmm. like you're saying that a family can't be two, two mm-hmm. men, two women, or just anything we say it is. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the father yes. from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Mm-hmm. So because he is a father, we have... I think the old Latin word was pater familias, like yeah. the, the father family. Yeah. Well, the 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 Greek word uh, for every family, it is um, all fatherhood. Yeah. Um, is is the 
and there's probably a note yeah. in your Bible that tells you what the Greek uh, is underneath it, but they translate it family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, or from whom all fatherhood, the Greek word patria in verse 15 is closely related to the word for father in verse 14. Yeah. So yes, those two ideas are connected because there is a father in heaven, the Bible teaches us. We then have fatherhood in families, which yeah. require fatherhood yes. on earth. So I mean, to really, to really push that uh, even further, it's like fatherhood is an essential component yes. of a household. And we, we talked about this in a, in a different episode where headship it's like to have a have a true family, a true household. It requires a head. Um, mm. So to have a family without a father, a real father, is is like a body without a head, because headship is a masculine yeah. calling. If uh, so, could in that, theory yeah. there be somebody out there without a head? I don't know. I guess I guess I suppose that's somehow possible, but it is not yeah. certainly the normal way that this is supposed to go. Yeah. And so a family without a father is missing an essential feature of yeah. family. And it, obviously we understand that in some families, the father dies or something. Um, yeah. It, it's yeah. I'm, I'm speaking about what's normative, right? What is normative? And you're not, you are not helping anybody see the world correctly or see God correctly. If you act as though one of the biggest pieces of this thing has now left and, it and that matter. is, it's something to grieve. Yeah. 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 So it's a fatherhood. It's, it's not, it, Fatherhood is not just a role. It's not. It's not a performance. It is. It is a presence that it that represents headship. It represents something real. Yeah. And so, to like in this in this section where we're unmasking sophistry, we're talking about how are words manipulated to to alter meaning, and the word family is altered. But then the 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 word family, the way the the content that's packed in. Is redefined. It doesn't have to be a father or mother and a father to be full of love. Mm. So it's the the implication there is that mother, father, those are not essential ingredients to family. And you know what? As you say that, I just realized some sophistry I didn't until now. I think that word and a father, subconsciously or consciously, that those words were inserted because everybody knows it would be too offensive. To just say a family doesn't have to have a mother to be full of love. Yeah. Like we would all instinctively recoil from that. Yeah. And why is it framed negatively? It's framed negatively because they the whoever wrote this knows they're challenging a convention. Yeah. And so it's it's casting off the traditions. I don't have of old. to adopt your convention to be full of love. Right. And by the way, what does love mean in this sentence? Love is not productive household love right. is not interdependence love is sentimental attachment right so it's it's it is how i feel about a person yeah i'm going to cut one one branch off of this tree and say that's the whole thing that yeah. that's it love is just the feeling and the sentiment yeah. when the biblical picture of love the biblical word is going to have a lot more to it than mere yeah romantic affection or emotion yeah. Well, we've talked about this in a different episode that marriage, sex, and children all three hang together. Yeah. They're 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 uh, it's a it's a package deal, and that's what a house so a household would include those three things. Yeah. Uh, marriage, sex, children, in that order. Childless couples in the Bible grieve. They grieve because something's missing. They know it's missing, um, and so to to redefine all of that and say, well. It's just the sentimental love, then it, it is it, it's it's emptied out. It's emptied out the meaning that was intended. And it would 
it would clearly uh, explain why everything in a household today seems to be in a family today seems to be geared towards rekindling and keeping that affection and sentiment alive. That's really all we care about is that if we got to take a vacation to do it fine. If you got to maybe even have an affair, like whatever you need to do to keep the emotional juices flowing. That's really yeah. what this is because about. the family is about emotional fulfillment, right? It's like, we're all about our emotional fulfillment, our personal satisfaction. Um, it's about us. And if you don't fulfill me, then maybe we're right. not a family because anymore. marriage is now a consumer product. Yeah. And it's like, if you're not cutting it, well, then I'll be like this uh, Twyla Perry. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I want to, I want to just sort of cafeteria style, use people yeah. in various ways to get what I want out of them for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a nonprofit in UK started by uh, a therapist. I can't remember her name, but it's called Standing Alone. And it's an advocacy organization for children. And I think they say parents too, but primarily grown children who want to estrange from their parents. Uh, and I, I read the article that kickstarted the whole thing for The Guardian back in the day, 2012, I think she wrote this article and it, it just, you know, kind of blew up and she, she, this became her life, is helping adult children estrange from their parents. But it seems pretty evident to me in that initial article that she wrote that basically if, if you do not meet my emotional needs, then our relationship is done. Yes. We can sever. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the thing was anyways. Now, and I'm sure her parents, you know, may not have been great parents, but regardless, the, the, the through line in her argument, in her reasoning is pretty clearly families are about emotional fulfillment. Therefore, if we don't fulfill each other emotionally, the family is gone. Yeah. I have to, I have to cast you aside because you're not doing your job. Right. You're not fulfilling your purpose. Whereas the Bible would clearly say at the beginning, it's a covenant. It's an actual covenant that God has authored. Let no man tear apart, tear asunder what God has put together. Um, but then also flowing from that covenant are things much more robust than mm. mere emotion. Well, they're producing something. Yeah. Least of all, uh, or not least of all, is children. Or I should say, first of all. Yeah, first. Like the foundational layer is children. And it's like, it, and when a couple is unable to have children, it is a source of grief because something's missing. But then you layer on top of that, like more layers of enterprise as more children enter the household and you need to do more work and you need to diversify and division of labor in order to fulfill uh, all the needs of the household. You grow this interdependence and that is sticky. That holds people together for generations. Yeah. That holds people together for 70 years when you have you know, a young man and woman get married, they have kids and those kids grow up and they have kids yeah. and then this household grows to where you now have multiple generations, a legacy. Now I got people to be buried next to. Right. And then, and by legacy, we're talking many generations to where I can say, well, you see this in the New Testament time, it matters what tribe the Messiah was born in. Yeah. He's from the tribe of Judah and the Messiah had to come from that tribe. It was a prophecy that he would be part of that the, the household of Judah, because the tribes are houses, mm -hmm. the 12 houses of Judah, there's uh, th these things, the household is the, is the, the spinal column mm -hmm. uh, of the entire. I mean, Paul brings up his own tribe when he's talking about his tribe Judaism. Of Benjamin. It yeah. mattered. It mattered to him. Uh, and, and this will never go away. You can't fight. So the sophistry is going to try to neuter the word family and sap it of 
of all of its strength and the abolitionists here that we read about, not in the good sense, like William Wilberforce, but the family abolitionists we read about, <laughs> they're going to try to undo what God has hardwired into the world, but they're not going to be able to, you cannot fight against gravity. Yeah. Gravity um, wins. Gravity wins. Reality wins. God really did make the world. So I, I, b- before we, I, I'm going to end on some reasons for hope, but I just wanted to read at least one part of scripture here to inform it. But I, I just want to make clear what, what we're saying. These are things to beware of. These are things to be on the lookout for. These are things to guard against and protect against. But you don't have to feel as though um, the family or the household is about to topple and collapse and it's not going to be here in 100 years. Mm-hmm. We will incur God's wrath potentially, and, and there will be ways we'll be disciplined and chastened as a nation. But the family, like the church, is going to survive. It's eternal. Yeah, uh, God is a father, and he's never going to stop being a father no matter how much we hate men. Yeah, the the household is built to last. Yeah, it is in it is an enduring institution, and it's not an accident that God has housed His covenant within a household, the household of Abraham, which spread into you know split into twelve. Uh, but that was the household of God, all of God's people, and the church is the household of God. I mean, the the household is the 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 uh, the structure within which. Redemption is accomplished and applied. Yeah. God is a father. He has a son. The son saved us. We are his bride. Uh, And then exactly what you just quoted here, I want to read from 1 Timothy about the church being the household of God. God did not use that metaphor just uh, flippantly or have the Apostle Paul use it flippantly. It is meant to communicate an eternal truth. So here in 1 Timothy 3, when he's talking about deacons, he says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they produce them, produce prove. I'm sorry, themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So a faithful man married to a faithful woman. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. managing their children and their own households well. So a faithful man married to a faithful woman, the man managing his children and his household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says in verse uh, 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So he's going to tell, talk about godly households mm-hmm. with a godly man and a godly woman, and then says, and oh, by the way, this thing that you are upholding is itself a household of God. Yeah. So you see, in Scripture, you started off in the beginning of the episode with this, like God created the world, and the, his, his, his relationship to creation is like a household. That is, create, then creation itself, he created Adam and Eve, and he called them to continue the work of creation which is creating a household. God's covenant with Abraham was through a household. Mm. It was, uh, then the household grew and that produced the Messiah, which he is the, the head over the church, which is the household of God. You see that the household structure um, is necessary and it, it, is, it is strong enough to withstand all of the, right. the storms and difficulties that come right. in life. And I love that the text that you read in verse 15, um, he said, I, you if I delay, uh, you may know how to, one ought to behave in the household of God. So the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 
and then a pillar and buttress of the truth. Amen. So it's like the household is a castle. Right. And the treasure is inside right. in the innermost chamber of the house and nothing That's can, exactly can right. overcome this. So God built it to last. That's exactly right. Which means what Jesus said, the gates of hell will never prevail, prevail. against God's household. Yeah. Because he says it'll never prevail against the church. They are, it is never going to prevail or win or defeat God's household. Yeah. God's household has walls that are a mile thick. Yeah. So good luck coming against it. Yeah. Um, and, and it is an eternal feature of reality. And, yeah. And the church that, the, the, the church being the thing that the gates of hell will not overcome, that doesn't mean First Baptist Church of Cincinnati, Correct. Ohio. That is the church as the household of God, the people of God that are living within this household structure. Um, yeah. So Correct. So we should build our individual ecclesia, our individual church in such a way that it corresponds, yes. it fits, it, it notches yeah. in that reality. If God's eternal church is going to be a, have walls a mile thick, then man, I should build my local church the same way. And I should build my little ecclesia, the Puritans called the family, my little yeah. church, my little household over at 123 Main Street with my wife and kids. I should build that one yeah. in the same way. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do another episode just on the, on the household as a doctrine itself. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's a very important doctrine that is, uh, need, needs attention these days. Absolutely. All right, so logs and specs. Logs and specs. Here's a question that I would like us to think about for a minute. What is the aroma of our own Christian households? And, I, and I'll go first, because so this logs and specs section uh, is where we, we offer some counsel on areas the Christian church and even our local church or us as men here sitting and talking into these microphones could be missing some things and we could be succumbing to the spirit of our age. And so in answering this question, what, what is the aroma of our Christian households? I do think far too often in ours, in American evangelicalism, uh, it is a place where um, it is a place where we ingest entertainment and it's a place where we maybe give out some spankings or some rewards for good grades on report cards. And other than that, it's not much. And so I, I don't think uh, it is without cause that we're seeing children leave the faith. We're both Calvinists. We don't think you can lose your salvation. And yet there are means that God uses to keep people in the faith. I don't think the fact that we're seeing children leave Christianity uh, and that we're not seeing children carry on the traditions of their parents is unrelated to or unconnected to um, the fact that these households are a loose collection of people who watch TV together. Yeah. I think there's something connected there. And I, I would like to see us in American Christianity recapture um, the scent of productivity. Yeah. Uh, the smell of sweat, spiritual sweat yeah. being uh, pressure exerted here for good. Mm. In my own house, um, I have I have not reach the point where uh, I'm I'm confident that an unbeliever watching everything we do and say would say, please let me have that. And I want to, mm -hmm. I want to reach the point where an unbeliever living with us or seeing us would say, man, let me, let me have the joy, the mirth, the mm -hmm. hope, the cheer, um, the perseverance that the Thomases have. Yeah. We're, we're headed in that direction by God's grace, but we're not there yet. And I, that's a goal of mine for 2023. What yeah. about you? I think what what I what I've observed is that there is a reluctance to celebrate the the family, the household in in the church broadly. Okay, and it is a I don't 
I can't speak to exactly why that is, but I have my suspicions. And I think it is, it is, we, anytime we're speaking a message that kind of violates, moves against the grain of culture, mm -hmm. even if it is as, as true as the Bible itself, um, whenever we speak into something that we know goes against where culture is moving, there's going to be some friction there. And so there is a, there, there is a reticence. Um, and I, I know that I'm speaking from my context. My context, our context together is in an urban church environment where this is the, the mood of where we are. Now, I'm sure there in other contexts you'll have pro-family. Um, that is the big impulse of different of individual churches. Praise God for that. If you're a part of a church like that, thank God for that. Yeah. Um, but I, I know in, in my context, that is something that I have seen as there is a there is a bit of a, a, a an uneasiness to really celebrate um, marriage as God designed it, um, having children, productive households. Mm -hmm. um, you'd be you'd get a much more ready reception to a sermon or an article on how to help a woman have a vibrant, fruitful career. Yeah. Than how to how to help a woman have a vibrant and fruitful family. Yeah. Yeah, so there are, and there's some things that that people would find objectionable or controversial, like the the idea of of, of a wife submitting to her husband. That's that's going to be uh, a message that will 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 draw some fire from mm -hmm. people that don't like to hear that. Um, I, I think this is this is one area where churches really need to be steadfast uh, because this is uh, the uh, it's it's a core Christian doctrine and just the practical benefit for children. You mentioned earlier about children abandoning the faith. Like the, I, that does happen. That, that is true. And I would put this also in my reasons for hope section. Okay. Um, which is when you have strong households, the way that we're advocating for, I think generally speaking, it is, that is the best way to preserve children's faith because you're, you're giving them solid structure, familiarity, something sound. Their minds are being shaped from the early age uh, with something true and real, and, and it's something moving with the grain of, of God's design and creation. Mm. Um, those kind of households tend to produce children that uh, they stay in the faith. The, the children of the reports that we hear of ex-evangelicals, kids abandoning the faith, that sort of thing, from my observation that this is anecdotal, this is not uh, necessarily driven by any data or study, but from my observation, those children are in churches that churches or families that are not really, um, I, I would say it's a, there, there's a, the churches themselves may not be doctrinally sound uh, and not necessarily heretical, but it might be just more of a vanilla. Bland. They're not teaching their parents how to catechize their kids. Right. Yeah. And, and when parents do that, it, it does matter. It does make a difference. Um, I think that my children are still young, so um, I'm, I'm trusting God. I'm praying for my kids all the time for mm -hmm. their faith. Um, but from what I have seen, it's, it's not like this is an impossible task. We, there are promises of God in Scripture that we should not be ashamed to claim and to say like this like God, like the promises are for you and you're, you don't have to be a pedo Baptist. Yeah. We're Baptist, Michael. Yeah, you're making right. me nervous. I, I am, I am Baptist, but I, that does not prevent me at all from claiming Amen. the promises that God gives me for me and my children. Amen. Um, so 
that is a reason for hope for me. I'm, I'm hopeful for the salvation of my kids, grandkids. I'm, I think I've mentioned this before. I'm personally praying and trusting God for four generations of, uh, of faithfulness. So there's, mm. a, I'm praying for my, I, I think I may live long enough to meet my great grandchildren. Um, and I'm praying that all of them will know Jesus, all of their spouses, uh, four generations. And that's, households can give you that. Yeah. Households can give you that. If you praise build, God, if you build them, if you're obedient to scripture, God is faithful to his word. Yeah. So th- those are, be- as you're, as you're given that reason for hope, which is, this is how we end each episode is our reasons for hope. I'm, I'm picturing, I really would love for you to give, uh, if, if I've got a three-year-old, a five-year-old, if I'm a young parent, I'm a late twenties, early thirties parent, and I haven't yet done this really well. I haven't catechized my kids. I haven't really considered getting them out of government schools. I haven't really thought about what it means to, to have a multi-generational Christian legacy. Help me here. I'm listening to this. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm not sure what to do. Give me some some particular guidance here. Can you yeah. offer? I, I would say here, here's a place. I would say a place to start, and then a place to move towards. Okay. I think the place to start. Um, a lot of parents that are really eager, they might think, okay, I got to do catechism. You know, I want to. I want to teach them. You know, the <laughs> Trinity and the Ten Commandments. And all. That's wonderful. I think the place to start is what do you delight in? Do you love it? Is this your life or is this something that you're, are you trying to impart to your children something you don't have? Man, that's so good. If you don't have it yourself, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you're not committed to a, uh, to a church, if you're not faithfully living out the Christian life, if Jesus is not the, the center of your life, then you're trying to give your kids something you don't have. And they'll so, tell, man. They can tell. Man, kids have a built-in hypocrisy detector. Yep. They know it. They can sniff it out, and they'll they'll call you on it. I'm mm. like, Daddy, that's not what you said we should mm-hmm. do. They'll notice it. Um, so I think like the like work on like your first focus is what is my walk with God like? What do I delight in? And let that let that joy, that delight, the laughter, like a home that is filled with laughter and fun. Um, people that really love each other. I mean, yep. that's you, you may, you may tell a child, um, son, what is the right. chief of man, chief right. end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay. Go do that today. If right. I, if they, they're going to know if that isn't the delight of your life, but if they see the delight, that's what they will associate. They'll grow up and they'll, you know, they'll, let's say you have a prodigal son. Um, what, what is it about your house? Yeah. Their their childhood that will make them think I can go home. It is it is the it is the environment that was created around them. They will remember and feel, and that's where that's where our desires are formed. Our kids will not want our Christianity if we don't enjoy it. Yes, it can't be sour faced, morose. Uh, and my bent is I I tend to be very serious. Me too. Um, and so I, it, for me, it is a discipline to to have fun, to enjoy life, to, and, and, and praise God for my wife who helps offset. She, my wife is a, is a, a sweet, joyful woman. Mm-hmm. She, uh, that is one of her greatest contributions to our household is that she is a wonderful woman to be around. And so my kids see the interplay between us. They learn something about men, women, mom, dad, and they associate that with the thing that is most important to us, which is Jesus Christ. And we try to live it out. And that, I think, is the greatest apologetic. Amen. Uh, so you take that baseline, and then you add to it catechism. You okay. add to it family devotion. You add to it your, whatever your schooling options. So I start with enjoy my Christianity. If I'm, if I'm the 32-year-old who's ready to start this after listening to this, 
drive home today praying, happy, asking Jesus to help you enjoy him, uh, smiling about the fact that he saved you from your sins, singing good, happy songs. I mean, like, am, am I am I getting it? Yes. Yeah. It's it's not like a formula where you, you put it in the machine, you turn the crank, and out pop out faithful children. It, it's got to be something that lives at the level of the Spirit. Okay. And and I think that the, the joy that you have is a manifestation of the Spirit of God within you. I can 100%. Common sense, first of all, tells you this. Every I I, I love baseball because my dad loved baseball. Like yeah. We can pick up on what our parents genuinely love. But I can also anecdotally offer you my own experience in a thousand percent confirming what you're saying, which is that I was a prodigal for three or four years. And what drew me back was my father's genuine, warm affection for Jesus. Yeah. So when I hit rock bottom in 2006 or so, it was because, or, and I called my father, it was because of that. Yeah. Because I remembered daddy loved Jesus. Hallelujah. It was that's, not that's amazing. an act. Yeah. So love Jesus, young parents. Um, and then, yes, do the catechisms. That's great. That's beautiful. Any other reasons for hope that you see uh, in the American church or the West or American society um, that, are, that are worth dwelling on? In this, in this case, I think the household is a, this, like a city on the hill. Okay. Jesus tells the church that we're a city on the hill. And I think that that is a practical, visible manifestation. So you take the, the articles that you read at the beginning and you, you play that out as those things do work themselves out in society. That becomes more normal, uh, as dark and ugly and, uh, painful as it is to even contemplate that happening. As that does happen, I think the bright light of the gospel will shine forth in healthy, godly households, mm. and that will, that will draw people that are being drawn to the gospel. They'll see it in our households, and I think that will, that will have an impact. And that is, it, it, is, a, it is a structure that is built to last. Mm. Praise God. I, I absolutely agree. I do think we're going to increasingly see uh, just carnage. In, among young people, especially who were raised in environments like this, and the more we can be beautiful, uh, aromatic, lovely, delightful, hopeful Christian households, the more we will attract. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of at least one young guy in our church who I know has brought this up as a part of the thing that his coming to faith in Christ mm. um, is seeing this sort of just vibrant spiritual health among real moms and dads, husbands and wives, children, and, and maybe even grandchildren. So. It's a beautiful apologetic. Let me end on this note, just offering to you, um, fight for the things that we have advocated for in your own life and in your own household. Fight for them. Read the Bible and pray for them. If you have unbelieving children right now, or if you hope to have children, you want to see them saved, pray for their salvation the same way Pastor Michael just said that he does for four generations, knowing that sturdy households build sturdy churches, mm. and sturdy churches are God's army for saving the world.